Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise talks with Dr. Brian Thorpe about the article HPV in the Malignant Transformation of Sinonasal Inverted Papillomas, a meta-analysis. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Carl Stores. Carl Stores enables anywhere care with the new sterile single-use flexible video endoscopes for ENT. As patient treatment continues to migrate, some sites of care are faced with reprocessing and sterilization challenges. With the new single-use endoscopes, reprocessing, transporting of dirty endoscopes, and repair costs are all eliminated. The video endoscopes provide a sharp image and can be used on multiple Carl Stores video platforms. Please visit www.carlstoresnetwork1.com forward slash ENT to find out more. Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Sarah Wise from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Thorpe from the University of North Carolina. And we'll be discussing their recent IFAR publication, HPV in the Malignant Transformation of Sinonasal Inverted Papillomas, a Meta-Analysis. So welcome, Brian, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity to uh, join you this afternoon. Excellent. So we'll just go ahead and jump right in and kind of kick our discussion off. Um, so the association between human papillomavirus and malignancies is not really a new finding in general. Um, certainly as otolaryngologists, we're much more aware of the role of HPV and things like oropharyngeal cancers. Um, why do you think the potential link between HPV and malignancy and in inverted papilloma has been so elusive or perhaps so controversial in the past? Yeah, that's a that's a fabulous question, and and I think um, I think a lot of it stems from um, really the heterogeneity of of the the management and clinical um, evaluation of these tumors. You know, being a historically benign phenomenon, I, I think that um, those these growths and these patients um, have been prioritized kind of from a surgical management standpoint, and the thought has essentially been, you know because it's benign or historically, you know, uh, has a very uh, a low likelihood of malignant transformation that, that the kind of the clinical assessment is, is key and it still is. But I think as we are, you know, learning more and more information, particularly from other subsites, the, the um, kind of ubiquity of HPV and the upper digestive tract is becoming uh, more and more apparent. And I think this became a, an obvious place of inquiry because we've seen this, you know, previously causal relationship between the two. And I think um, uh, just this new emphasis on it, new way of thinking about it, you know, um, has allowed us to, to look more deeply in it. I think it's just like when you see a patient and um, you're searching for a diagnosis, you know, the, the kind of the, you cast a wide net. And then when you kind of know what it is, you go back and say, oh yeah, it's obvious now because I, I, I know what I'm looking for. And that, that subtle finding is now not so, not so subtle. Um, so I guess with regard to this study, I, I'd really like to hear a little bit about the methodology um, in this meta-analysis and what you and your, that you and your colleagues performed and 
the types of studies that uh, had been previously published and were included in this in this analysis. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think um, the the big push for this study was to to the best of our ability, which you know clearly is limited anytime you're you're not using your own source data or a, a large component of source data where you can control all the variables. Um, the goal was really to to extract the studies that we felt were of the highest quality possible to minimize not only heterogeneity um, within the population of papers that we included, but also have a better ability to actually extract patient-specific data. I think we're all aware of the, the kind of the, the great utility of database studies, but I think we all know what the conclusion is of every database study is that a, a prospective randomized trial or a trial in which there's patient-specific um, data available would be what we would use. And I think this is you know, clearly not that level, but a stepping stone in between. And so, um, you know, our goal was first to cast a wide net, um, which, you know, we did. Um, and then we really went through the abstracts with a fine tooth comb and, and we had a, a pretty high exclusion rate. And it was really very much on purpose. Um, and the idea was that we really wanted to get down to that, that th those key papers that we felt met all the criteria. And then as you can see with the paper, I mean, really it's a binary question that we're asking, but a lot of the analysis really came at looking at individual bias and individual contribution of the overall um, outcomes of an individual paper on the, on the study. So, um, you know, some of the, the beautiful statistics that were done really didn't even look at kind of the, the final result that we were looking at was between the HPV, between the relationship of HPV and malignant transformation, but really how each study contributed to that result. And so I think, um, what this showed is, is that, that we are able to extract high quality data. There is high quality data out in the literature. And then when you use it, um, we can come, you know, we can start inching closer to those answers and inching closer to those, um, those bigger studies really. Yeah. I, I, in reading the paper, I definitely appreciated that about your analysis. Um, you know, that, that it was, it did kind of look at the individual papers and, and assess whether, you know, it was one study or a couple of studies that sort of carried the whole results. Um, so, you know, that, that was very helpful to see. Um, so can you go ahead and give us just kind of a general summary of your results? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, um, I'll save the punchline for the end, I guess, of the general summary, but <laughs> the, the short of it is, um, you know, when looking at these extracted, um, the extracted data from the 19 papers that we included in the um, in the meta-analysis, we found that there was a significant association between HPV infection um, and then the and the and malignant transformation of inverted papilloma and squamous carcinoma, and that's kind of you know kind of the the key point. And then once we found that, then we really wanted to look at a lot of subgroups and a lot of subsequent information to see if those things also held true. And so again, we looked at you know, where patients um, were uh, located geographically and you know, what continent they were on. So where the source patient paper was from. Um, we looked at the time of diagnosis because there actually has been some discrepancy um, in the literature about when patients were diagnosed um, and what the results were. And initially we did a pre-2000, post-2000, then we did it by decades. And, and again, we didn't see a, a difference between those. We saw the that there was still an association amongst all those different subgroups. Um, and then we looked at how the, um, how HPV was detected um, 
we only did nucleic acid uh, detection methods. So just uh, in-situ hybridization or uh, PCR, um, looking at DNA and RNA. The vast majority were DNA. Um, and looked to see if there was a difference between the two. And, and again, there was not a difference, you know, indicating that, you know, the way you look for the HPV, while it is important with sensitivity and specificity, kind of at the, the laboratory level, um, it, there, it didn't, it wasn't an overwhelming um, driver of uh, an association or a lack of association. Um, and I thought that that day was actually really interesting because it was kind of different than what I thought it was going to be. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about that um, kind of in our discussion. But um, what I think it shows is, number one, um, you know, as we think about medical literature as a, as a whole, finding ways to be as as homogeneous as possible across institutions, across ways that we describe things, uh, across just the way that we present data in the literature. Um, will be very helpful because again, it can wash out some of these questions. Um, uh, and, and two, sometimes, you know, when you initially, initial glance at something really does require some, some further evaluations because when you look at the insight to hybridization, even though the odds ratio was higher of, the, of Molina transformation in that group, you know, the confidence interval crossed one. And then when you, the sample size was smaller, so you have some statistical reasons why that was the case. And then when you think of just the methodology behind, you know, really the, the human error factor in that, <laughs> um, there's also kind of that, that confounder as well that you can't really control for statistically. Um, but again, I think nonetheless really important, it kind of drives home some of the, the key points of, of how we present data, you know, moving forward. Yeah, so, um, so in essence, um, you did find kind of overall, just to summarize, that there was um, a higher odds of malignant transformation for those patients that had HPV present. Um, and a lot of these subgroup analyses, which, um, you know, have been potentially highlighted in previous studies as, um, you know, reasons for discrepancy, it seemed that um, that you did not really find a lot of differences um, in things like year of publication and, and things like that. So, um, and also geographic distribution. Um, so I, I, I certainly thought, thought those things were interesting. I was hoping maybe you could comment on the um, HPV subtype question, the, the sort of high risk, low risk, um, you know, which is certainly discussed in other uh, types of HPV-related um, car carcinomas? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and um, certainly a, um, a critical factor. And, and you know, we continue to identify more subtypes that are inching towards high risk, especially in the, in kind of the oropharynx literature. Um, but for the purpose of this paper, it was 16 and 18 were high risk and, and non-16 and 18 were everything else. Um, and, and not a lot of papers reported it, um, which again is a, a little bit of a weakness of this analysis, but nonetheless, um, we did show that the high risk HPV subtypes had a stronger um, uh, propensity towards malignant transformation than the low risk, um, which again, I think is really important. Um, you know, when you think about you know, clinical risk stratification, how you approach these patients, not all HPV patients are created equal. We see that in the, you know, the GYN world, you know, it's certainly um, it's something that, that makes sense because, you know, the virus doesn't exactly know where it is. It just knows that it's in cells that it likes. Um, and so um, the idea that there would be massive differences in behavior um, 
you know, I think um, may have some, you know, there may be some local modifiers of that, but, but the virus itself doesn't, doesn't know. And so I think it, it, it kind of stands to reason that as we, as we mature this data moving forward, this, this may be a trend that we see um, more significantly. And then again, we'll just further our abilities to help patients and think about clinical risk stratification and, and the like. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, I'd love to hear kind of in, in your words, um, how this particular work differs from prior analyses of the sort of the presence or the role of HPV in sinonasal inverted papilloma? Yeah, um, you know, I think the, the, the biggest push in my, in my perspective when we, were, when we were thinking about this paper um, was we wanted to just make one single conclusion. I mean, there's a lot of subgroup analyses, there's a lot of other components to this paper, but, but I think the biggest push was, you know, take it to the, to the, to the most basic statistical question, make it binary. And, and, and so does it play a role or does it not play a role? And how can we best answer that? Let's not, you know, confound the situation by thinking about outcomes, by thinking about, you know, treatment paradigms, by, by thinking about all the other things that, that a lot of papers have done really well. Um, but, but in, I think sometimes the, the message gets lost in, in, in those papers, right? You know, it's, it, it, my goal was really just to have one binary thought, overarching binary thought at the end of this paper. And so, um, again, that, that's really why we spent so much time thinking about how individual papers contributed to the overall analysis, how, how the heterogeneity of papers, the bias of papers, the quality of a paper um, just, just answered that single question. Um, and, and while it's not a definitive, nothing can be definitive with, you know, these, these types of analyses, I think what it does do is it allows us to really hang our hat on saying, you know, if we really look at the data in a very critical way, try to eliminate as much bias as we can, not censoring data, but limiting bias based on, on, you know, a single subset of data pushing an answer one way or the other, um, that we can say that HPV clearly has a role um, in malignant transformation of IPs to squamous cell carcinoma um, based on this data, right? Now, could more papers and more, more data that, that contribute to this ultimately change that? Absolutely. Um, but I think this is a, a foundation and a step-off point for us to make that first assumption, or hopefully no longer an assumption. Um, and then once you make that first assumption, all the subsequent questions that have really been you know, addressed by even some of the papers that have been included in this um, can really be thought of in the lens of HPV as a, as a driver and an independent risk factor. Um, because I think sometimes um, we, you know, we wanna say, oh, HPV related, um, you know, or IP, squamous cell carcinoma related to IP does better than de novo squamous cell carcinoma. You know, that's like this, you know, everyone talks about that. Um, but we don't even understand how those two different things exist. I mean, really, are we missing so many of the of the ideologic factors that it's really a, 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 a much different group, right? And so, and so taking away kind of all those confounders really just created this binary question to be the foundation for future thoughtfulness. So what's the next step or the next ideal step in researching this particular topic? Um, do you think that we definitively have an answer or is there more work to be done to, to truly understand the relationship? I think there's, there's definitely a lot more work to be done. And, um, 
And I think the next big step is, is, is incorporating HPV into, into kind of the basic workup of these patients, um, these patients' analyses. I think being able to have large single, um, uh, single institution cohorts that then can be combined uh, along among multiple cohorts will allow us to not only look at um, the, the prevalence of HPV in these patients, but then also the important factors, the outcomes, the, the, the way that the HPV not only modifies their, their risk of transformation, but then their, their outcomes down, down the way. I mean, clearly we, with, you know, oropharynx, you know, um, HPV related oropharyngeal swimming cell carcinoma, we, you know, the pendulum has, has swung so significantly where we're, we're, we're looking at trials now where we're cutting, you know, the, you know, what, what would be the standard doses in non-HPV related oropharynx is almost in half. Um, you know, it's a totally different staging system. Um, there's so many amazing things that have come from that work. And really it came with just this binary idea. And then, then people can pull their things together and, and then you can say, wow, th this is, this is two things that look the same in the nose phenotypically, but genotypically and ideologically it's, it's so different. Um, and so I think it, it starts with institutions, you know, coming together, getting this data, um, and then, then re-asking this binary question, seeing if, you know, when you have a less heterogeneic group that, that this binary question holds true. And then if it does, then using that same subset that you've been able to follow at that point, then asking those secondary questions about outcomes and, and treatment. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so if we now take kind of the, the idea and thought of large cohorts and, you know, the next, next step in research and multi-institutional and, you know, following large um, groups of patients for a long time. And, and we now kind of flip it to the individual patient. Um, so how does this study that, that you've just completed and just published, how do you translate that into your clinical practice? Um, when, when that patient walks into the office, um, you know, with either a diagnosis of inverted papilloma already, or, or you're making the diagnosis and, and you're going to treat that patient. Um, have you all routinely tested for HPV and inverted papilloma specimens? Um, and if so, how did you use that information in the past? Um, how will it, will this change how you use it in the future? And if you haven't tested for it in the past, will, will you ask your pathologist to test for it in the future? Um, Absolutely. So, um, uh, uh, prior to about a year ago, it was a very sporadic process. And basically the patients that, that developed HP related, or sorry, IP related squamous carcinoma, we would sit in tumor and we say, you know, we should test this for HPV. And it was a very completely random process. And then we decided about a year ago, um, you know, about the time the genesis of this paper was coming about that that was going to be just a standard practice from, from our pathology team to, to look at this really for kind of the academic inquiry. Um, and, and now that we've looked at this, you know, I've, the, the conversation I've had with patients that have had, you know, pathologically negative squamous cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma in site two, but HPV positive IP, um, I've talked to them about the, the possibility of that being a, a risk factor for transformation. And my follow-up schedule for them is different. Um, I 
typically see patients the first two years every three months um, and, and then spread out before then because just we know all IP, um, all folks with IP have the highest risk of recurrence in the first two years. Um, but I treat the HPV related folks, I tell them because obviously I didn't know this data on a more regular um, basis prior to a year ago, that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually extend that out to three years. And then at the four year mark, it'll be every six months and then five year annually, which is what I do with my cancer patients, which is totally different than my IP patients. The other thing, which I think you probably have seen clinically is we know that when we take patients to the OR with IPs, um, the healing process is very different. And sometimes you get kind of auto obliteration of the sinus that you dissected, you get, you know, um, abnormal scarring patterns just because your resection is, you know, is larger, you're taking bone, you're trying to take kind of the, the full, um, the, the tumor in a margin basically. And so if patients that I can't survey their cavity uh, endoscopically because of auto obliteration or otherwise, I'll image those patients. Whereas before, if I had someone with squamous cell negative or um, inside two squamous cell negative IP, I wouldn't image them because I, you know, they don't have cancer. But in someone that has an HPV, I would, I, I tell them, you know, I'm actually going to keep a closer watch on this. I want to get uh, routine imaging just to, to follow things along. And I've actually taken a couple back even in the last year, just to kind of survey their cavities for this exact reason. Um, and um, maybe that's that pendulum swinging and being overkill, um, which can happen sometimes when we kind of come on a new data. Um, but I, you know, knowing this in the back of my mind, I feel like I have an obligation to do it at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, I could definitely see how, you know, being kind of so close and involved with this study and, you know, coming across results that you feel, you know, quite confident in um, would change your clinical practice. And, you know, this is part of the reason why research is important. Um, and, you know, we learn along the way and we hope that it influences our clinical practice in a way that improves the outcome for our patients ultimately. And so. I didn't I didn't touch on this in the paper and I and I certainly haven't done this in my in my own patients, but you know, there's now emerging data in the oropharynx population that non-vaccinated, um, non-HPV vaccinated patients that get an HPV associated squamous cell do have some benefit from getting a vaccine post diagnosis. I clearly haven't done that in these patients because that's a big jump, but I think that's another big thing to think about. And then also just kind of looking at things from a population perspective, will, will inverted papilloma be a thing of the past? I mean, you know, as, as vaccinations improve, I mean, that would be a triumph. Who knows? We'll see. But again, so many interesting questions and thoughts as you kind of really dissect down the data and the implications. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, any final thoughts um, that you want to add before we uh, conclude our discussion? Yeah, well, uh, a couple of things, you know, um, number one, I, you know, I, again, I appreciate the, um, the opportunity to talk about this here in this forum and, and um, certainly welcome any questions that anyone that, that has listened um, to this has. And um, certainly I think uh, the future of, of medicine is, is team-based efforts, uh, you know, within institutions and, and across institutions. And I think the only way that we're gonna answer questions about um, you know, diseases that occur frequently in our practices, but rare in the population are to team together. And um, it'd be wonderful to know in 10, 10 plus years, if, you know, um, not only this paper, but, you know, many papers that have 
similar thoughts have, you know, even shifted the way we think about these patients in a small, small degree. I think every, every baby step we can make towards, towards improvement is critical. Um, um, and so um, I certainly hope that that's the case and, and look forward to collaborations. And, and I think, you know, this paper and several others that, um, that have been in, in IFAR and recent uh, publications have really emphasized the, the keys for complete data sets and, and including complete data in either appendices or otherwise. And, and I think, you know, being able to look back at papers 10 years past, you know, 20 years ago, et cetera, and being able to pull out patient specific data is so powerful um, because you have your lens changes and your understanding of things change. And so when you can go back to data and say, oh, now I can interpret this based on these other understandings that we have really, you know, allows you not to recreate the wheel. And so I think hopefully there, we continue to make trends towards that. And then I really wanted to thank, you know, the wonderful team, you know, here at UNC, great rhinology group here that have been incredibly supportive of these kind of thoughts and, you know, our, and especially our, our wonderful residents, you know, Wesley Stepp and Santa Frizzal, who, who really did an amazing job with this paper as well. Excellent. Um, what a fantastic discussion. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Brian. And again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. Uh, this is Sarah Wise for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm signing off for now. So until next time, see you later. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.